as much as that the ending of that trip was maybe a bummer and not certainly not how I had uh, envisioned it. I mean, I still remember riding around on that motorcycle thinking to myself, this is the most freeing experience of my life. And I, I was so connected to my dad, you know, riding around this, this beautiful country. And, um, but it was also like, Hey, you were stuck under a motorcycle with a broken carbone and you may not have been able to get out of there. So, I mean, <laughs> there's like, you know, this, 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 uh, balance to it. Hi, my name is Nathan Baumeister, and you're listening to Builder Banker Hacker Chief, a podcast where executives from the world of finance and technology share the story of how they got where they are and the decisions that made them who they are. I'm looking for hidden moments of truth and sacrifice, wisdom and folly, and what it's like to navigate treacherous waters at the helm of a growing company. I want to do all that so that together we can learn from their journey and use that insight personally and professionally. In episode five, my guest is Bert Hicks, President and Chief Strategy and Growth Officer at Encore Bank, a financial institution that is redefining what it means to be nimble, powerful, and put people first. He has an amazing ability to help people reach their full potential and allow plenty of room for them to make mistakes. The team he helps lead at Encore is unlike anything else in the banking world, and they've only been around for four years. When Bert Hicks tells a story, you want to listen. You never know if he's going to talk about climbing off a glacier with a dislocated shoulder or surviving a motorcycle accident in the jungle. Whatever it is, you can bet it will leave you with something to think about, just like this episode. Well, Bert, thanks so much for joining us for uh, Builder Banker Hacker Chief. Yeah, appreciate uh, appreciate being invited. Really looking forward to this conversation. Uh, you've you've uh, got a great series, and hopefully, I can uh, add to that. Yeah, well, I ha- I have no doubt. It's been such a privilege getting to know you after over the last several years, both in a professional and uh, personal capacity. Uh, just for the audience, for their benefit, would you mind just doing a quick introduction to let them know who you are? Yeah, uh, Bert Hicks. I uh, I live in Little Rock, Arkansas. Um, I helped to start an, an organization called Encore Bank uh, uh, back in 2019, and uh, I'm sure we'll talk a little bit about uh, kind of our model. But it was really the idea of building a different kind of bank for 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 today, um, and to and to provide a better banking experience. And so, uh, myself and two other guys uh, started off on that endeavor, and it's been a it's been a wild ride, but a, but a lot of fun. Uh, grew up in Arkansas, have have lived elsewhere, but. Uh, most of my life's been here, and uh, I've got I've got two kiddos and uh, a wife, and uh, live a pretty normal life here in Little Rock. So uh, nothing too special, but uh, excited to again be with you. Yeah, nothing too special other than you know growing one of the the, the fastest growing banks in the United States over the last several years. Some of us might think that's pretty exciting. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you know I, I appreciate that, but the reality is uh, it's there's a there's a phrase we have inside Encore, and it's it's one of our core values. It says we win together, and uh, that that hashtag was actually coined less than a year into our journey, and uh, it's it's such a huge part of who we are and our ethos as a company. Um, everybody wears uh, these cheesy little wristbands that say that uh, and Encore Bank on it, um, and so it, it's been like I said, an absolute wild ride, a very humbling experience, but only possible because of of the so many great teammates we have on on this uh, uh, journey together. Yeah, absolutely. And I love that motto, we win together. One of the ones I always say is building a company is a team sport, and uh, we have a great one. Um, I, I'm super excited to be able to get to that the story of how you all have built Encore and how you've grown um, and how you really bring to life that motto of we win together. But I'm sure that's not just a motto for the bank, but something that you personally believe in as well. And uh, one of the things that we love doing at Builder Banker Hacker Chief is to rewind a little bit into the early years of, of those that we're talking to, to dive into what are some of the things or experiences or people that have really had an outsized impact on you to help you become the leader that you are. So I'd love to just kind of take that step back, rewind with you a little bit, and uh, go back to the the early days of Bert Hicks' life. <laughs> well, um, you're right, and and I, I think you know we all have folks in our lives that have uh, 
have impacted us and in, in outsized ways, especially. Um, and there's, there's several people in my life that, that have contributed to, to who I am, um, both as a person and, and professionally, I, I, most of those folks would uh, probably be either looking at me across the table or looking at me from above saying, Hey, I still need you to be better. You still got a lot of room for improvement. So, uh, you know, the folks that kind of come to mind, uh, you know, initially, or I'm sure a lot of people feel this way about one or both of their parents, but for me, uh, the impact that, that my dad had on me and, and, and my life, um, is, is pretty special. We were, we were super close and had a very unique father son relationship. Um, unfortunately this December I'll be, uh, remembering his death that, that from 10 years ago, but, um, yeah, we had a, uh, a close bond and, and he was, there were some really unique characteristics about him that I think I've, I've, uh, I've been able to emulate and others that I, I wish I could emulate. Uh, my dad was one of the most empathetic men that, that I've ever known. Um, and I think a lot of that came from life experiences and just, just, he was extremely wise and, and I don't have that same level of empathy, but it's something that I always really admired about him. Um, I also think that it's, it's hard to have the level of empathy that my dad had. So, um, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's something that I strive to do, but I'm not sure that I'll ever, you know, quite get to that level. But, um, you know, my dad was a, an extremely compassionate, caring, caring person. I, I didn't know it was a big deal until I got to college, um, my dad was up there one day at the fraternity house and gave me a hug and, and uh, told me he loved me on his way out. And, and one of my fraternity brothers looked at me and said, you tell your dad you love him. And I was like, yeah, I tell my dad I love him. I've, I've never not told my dad I've loved him. You know, you don't tell your dad you love him. And um, and so that was that was one of those kind of moments where you're like, man, you know, uh, there is something special with my dad. And, and so many of my friends would just talk about how unique he was. And so um, and he was somebody that I could always go to with with a scenario, whether it was, you know, a career decision or uh, a personal life kind of uh, fork in the road. And no matter what the situation was, he, he just had this level of wisdom to, and, and uh, ability to kind of help me think through that. And so I, I certainly miss that, uh, not having that readily available, but he's somebody that, that has had that impact. Another um, person in my life that has contributed to, you know, me in a lot of ways was my high school cross country and track coach, uh, Carl Kuntz. He, um, uh, really took me under his wing and, and, uh, maybe he saw something in me or, or maybe he saw that I, I had, a, a you know, a, a, I needed to, to have something, uh, somebody invest in me, but, um, yeah, he really, really, uh, took a lot of, of time and effort to make sure that I reached my potential and, and, uh, you know, he and my dad and uh, myself were, were on the road a lot in high school, going to kind of national meets and uh, and what have you. And so I got to spend a lot of time with him, still stay in touch with him, uh, not as frequently as I would like, but um, he's uh, he's a special man. And, and then there's been others along the way. So I don't know at what point you want to, uh, you know, me to stop. But that's kind of the childhood, folks, I, I would say, is, is my dad and Coach Coons. Yeah, well, I, I, I love that. One of the things that you shared – about your father um, when, you know, one of your friends saw you interacting with him and he said he loved you and you said back that you loved him. This idea of uniqueness being normal and how sometimes those of us that are in some sort of culture, it could be a family culture, it could be in a business, it could be in a team sport or whatever, that the unique things that you do oftentimes become normal to you until other people point it out. Um, and that's just, uh, I, I love that. And it's a great example of living by example as well. Um, one question I have for you on, um, on, on your dad, is there any specific experiences or stories that either he shared with you, you observed or other people shared with you that really kind of helped really open your eyes to the empathetic nature of, 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 of that being one of his strengths? Um, yeah, I mean, I, I could probably do a, a podcast much longer than this on, on my dad, seriously. So, um, you know, his, his, uh, one of his, you know, things that he always told us was, and, and, you know, growing up, I wanted to be, you know, uh, the most popular kid and the, the, the fastest kid and the strongest kid and the smartest kid, you know, all, all the things that, uh, a, a higher achiever like I was as a kid, you know, wanted to, to, uh, 
hit. And my dad told me one day, and, and this was a mantra throughout his life, like you don't, it's not about being popular. If, if you, if you end up with, you know, true friends, I'm talking about folks that would do anything for you that you can count on more than one hand. Uh, you, you should consider yourself to be really, really blessed. And, and he talked a lot about, you know, some of his friendships in life and um, some of the folks that would do anything for him and, and he would do anything for. And I got to witness some of those, particularly in the later stages of his life and um, kind of the last uh, decade or two um, in, in various ways, really. But, um, you know, especially after my dad got diagnosed with cancer and, and, and got to see the folks that really invested in, in him and his, his well-being. But even before that, you know, some of the things that he did to reconnect with kind of some of his earlier life that, that we may or may not get into today. But, um, you know, seeing those people that, that you may only spend a little bit of a, a small part of your life together, but because of what you've you've experienced together or because of the, uh, you know, maybe a year, but it feels like seven years because of, you know, the, the trials or the tribulations of the successes or whatever it may be. And some of those folks to kind of come back into his life in the last 10 or 15 years was really cool to see. Yeah, no, that's awesome. And I'm sure that was um, very special to witness as a son um, throughout your life. Um, and then as you talked about uh, your coach, Carl Coots and uh, high school track and cross country coach, I know that cross country and track played a big part of your life, both in high school as well as in college. And so what what were some of the things that you learned either from your coach or just from competing that have really help to form you in your leadership uh, principles that you follow? Yeah, I think Coach Kuntz, um, you know, one, he was a, he was a, an all-time great uh, runner in his own ride. And so he, he knew what excellence looked like. And uh, I think those types of people probably can, can spot talent um, even when talent can't spot itself. And so Early on, I'd say like eighth or ninth grade, I was I was doing cross country and track to get you know a few more letter uh, patches on my jacket or you know whatever I was <laughs> whatever I was doing, um, and I didn't think anything about cross country or track. It certainly wasn't the the sexy sport. It wasn't the popular sport. But uh, he saw something in me and and um, and I think taught me that hey, it, it doesn't. You, you, all you can do is limit yourself if you, if you, you know, set your set goals. Now goals are really, really important, but, um, and, and they certainly can help us, you know, maybe perform better tomorrow than we did yesterday, but they can also be a a limiting factor. You know, you, you, you just don't know what you're capable of until you really go chase a dream. And, and I think coach Kuntz taught me that no matter how, uh, much I thought I could do in this coming season or, you know, by my senior year or whatever, that, that, that was probably too low of a bar and I had to push harder and, and just the, the work ethic that, that coach Kuntz uh, instilled in me, uh, I think has, has uh, manifested itself throughout my, my life journey, both, but again, professionally and personally, um, you know, I, I, I would give anything to be the runner I was back then today. I'm, I'm far from it. That was a, a, a few beers ago, as I say, uh, you know, some folks say a few moons ago or years ago for me, it's uh, it's been too long. But um, nonetheless, th- those life lessons, you know, can 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 help in really any any setting. Yeah. Well, uh, isn't it interesting that some of those people that have the biggest impact on our lives are also the ones that push us, you know, past the limits that we only perceived? I'm curious, as, as, as now you're a, a leader of an organization, and I'm sure you hold that leadership position in multiple spheres in your life, um, you know, balancing out and maybe even how uh, Coach Koontz did this, this idea of pushing, asking for more, but still feeling like you actually love and care about them at the same time. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a, that's a great tease out. You, you've said it better than I said it. Um, I think here at Encore, we, I'm surrounded by some uber talented folks that, for for whatever reason, um, may not have had the opportunity at their at their previous stop or previous stops to to uh, kind of have 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 the opportunity to to make the impact that they've made here at Encore. And part of it is a function of you know we're a startup organization and and you've got to you got to pull your weight and, and then some to to, uh, to to stay on the train because we don't have uh, you know as many seats on this on this uh, bus if you will. 
but I think also a lot of it is getting out of the way uh, for people. When you when you see talent and when you see ability and capability, you know the best thing to me is is give some guidance, give some uh, framework, and then you know really scoot out of the way. Now that doesn't mean be be hands off. That doesn't mean uh, ignoring and and just delegating so that you have to do less. It means you know, being there as a sounding board, if they've got questions or if there's follow-up or further, further directions needed, but it's, 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 it definitely means at least for me to, uh, to, to allow people to kind of come into their own and, and, and learn. Giving people room to excel also means giving them room to make mistakes. You can't unlock someone's true potential unless you take calculated risks. Those risks should probably make you a little uncomfortable in the sense that it is a real risk and you're invested in the outcome. It's possible to manage catastrophic downsides and create space for amazing upside that you couldn't have predicted or asked for. That's where your team can truly shine. You know, there's not a ton of mistakes that we can make at Encore or I could make in my life that are going to totally destroy the organization or uh, my family or, or my life or, or whatever. Now, those that, that, that have that type of, of downside risk, certainly there's going to be more guardrails and there's going to be more parameters set. Um, but, but where there's not some catastrophic kind of downside risk, uh, get out of the way and, and let people kind of uh, reach their own ceiling. And it's probably higher than they ever thought it was. And it's, it's also probably higher than I thought it was. And we've seen that over the last you know four plus years here at Encore. Yeah. That's awesome. Now, backtracking a little bit, you know, as you transitioned from high school, you made the decision to go to higher education. And so I'm curious, kind of, as you as you think about that post high school educational career, kind of, what was the path that you decided to take and why? Yeah, I, I like I grew up in a small town in Arkansas. I always wanted to get out of this place, I thought, um, and uh, really was going to use running to to, uh, to do that. And I had an opportunity to, to go, you know, and run just about anywhere I, I would have wanted to. And, and I thought I was going to go to, uh, I actually committed and, and, uh, signed at Cornell university and was, was going there to, to run cross country and track. And then, uh, the latter half of my senior year, uh, you know, had an opportunity to, to go to Arkansas and, and run for coach John McDonald. Um, that's kind of the premier, distance running program in the country. They had won 40 national titles, uh, you know, maybe, maybe not quite as, as premier anymore as it was 20 years ago. But uh, when Coach McDonald, you know, made, gave me that opportunity, that was, that was really hard to pass up because I really thought I had uh, professional aspirations with running and was going to go, you know, chase the Olympics or whatever as, as wild-eyed as that was when I was 18 years old. But um, so that took me to Arkansas. And then um, – when I running my running career got cut uh, uh, pretty abruptly with an injury, and um, you know, I, I really had to kind of level set, and, and you know, running had become so much of who I was for for you know a multiple year period of time and part of my life, and uh, there was a part of me that kind of felt lost, and so um, like so many people, you know, you you throw yourself into something, and then that's that's taken from you. There's this void and. And, and, you know, maybe you seek out other avenues to kind of fill that void and you realize that, that those aren't healthy ways to fill that void. And so probably the next thing I threw myself into was my career and, and the academic side of getting me to my career. This is something I've wanted to do for a long time was start a bank. I'm one of those weird folks that kind of had this idea that, of what I want to do back, you know, even in high school. And, um, you know, I absolutely pursued everything I could in, in college and with internships and, and programs and what have you to, to kind of go on this path. Um, but Arkansas was a great education. Um, I was I was part of the Walton College of Business. Uh, the, the Honors College program there was was incredible. I was surrounded by supremely talented, very smart individuals that were doing great things in their own right. So um, I didn't transfer anything. I stayed I stayed there in Fayetteville and, and ended up graduating, you know, and, and moving to New York, but it was a, it was a great, uh, you know, academic experience at Arkansas. Yeah. Uh, it's, um, it's interesting how often when we think that the, the thing that we want to do is run away from some of the things that we're closest to, but then later find out that maybe staying right here is the best thing for us to do. Um, 
I also relate deeply to this idea that um, you've created a lot of your identity around a thing that you did running. And then when that was gone, how you had to struggle with that. And I see that a lot in the workplace as well. How many times people start to identify themselves, their well-being, their value in life based off their professional job. Um, but we all know that sometimes professional jobs are transient. And uh, it, can be, it can be something that creates speed bumps in the road. Um, and it's uh, very cool that you had an opportunity. I'm sure you didn't think it was cool at the time. Uh, but it was uh, cool that you had that opportunity to, 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 to learn that lesson early on in your life. Yeah. I, and I, I don't know that necessarily I truly fully learned the lesson until you know, many years further down the road. But um, you're right. We do find ourselves, we find our identity too often, in, in my view, at least in, in the wrong things. And it's, and it's things that are fleeting. It's things that are filling a void that, you know, we may not even realize is there or, or you know, patching up a, a scar from childhood or whatever. Um, and so I think you, you know, you're, you're, what you're saying really resonates with me. And again, I'm, I'm not sure I fully learned that lesson. I still uh, probably find myself, my identity and some things that, that, uh, you know, may not be the best thing to find my identity in, but uh, I appreciate what you're saying very much. Yeah. Uh, the other thing, I also happened to be one of those weird kids that in high school, I knew what I wanted to do. I did have two options, though. It was either a stuntman or CEO of a startup company. Um, <laughs> at some point, I decided I wanted a family and figured that uh, doing a startup company might be a little bit safer than stuntman. Uh, now that I've done it, I'm not hey, sure. There's still time, actually. Nathan. There's still time. <laughs> I'm holding out hope. I'm holding out hope. <laughs> As you as you think about your time in New York, uh, was it working with Merrill Lynch the whole time while you were up there? Uh, well, until Bank of America, uh, you know, acquired uh, Merrill through the uh, you know failed uh, failure of Merrill Lynch during the Great Recession. But yeah, I was with I was with Merrill, and I was I was an so, investment banking analyst in the financial institutions group at Merrill Lynch. Yeah, which ties back to getting to kind of that dream that you had to start a bank was. You're learning about banking from that point of view. Yeah. Um, any like, standout? Oh, go ahead. Oh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Yeah, I just felt like through different mentors and, and advisors during the, my, my college years that kind of having that corporate finance uh, experience and seeing how to, how to lead a financial institution or how to, how to, how to run a financial institution from the kind of corporate finance side would, would benefit me down the road. Um, that was never my, you know, I didn't want to be an investment banker the rest of my life, but I, I wanted to learn how to, how to do deals, what made a bank valuable. Um, you know, how, what, what was the importance of equity and debt and, and building a cap stack. And, and so that, that was that experience. Yeah. Any standout experiences during your time there that really, as you look back, um, you can say, Hey, I learned a lot from this or something that, encapsulates some of those big learnings that you got during that time early on in your professional career? Well, it was, it was a, such a unique time. I had, uh, you know, this was during the great recession and uh, banks were failing, you know, left and right during that time. And so Merrill was really on the front end of, of providing uh, advisory services to healthy banks to, to go out and, and acquire these, these failed banks through uh, FDIC assistance. So with that, what that experience taught me was there were some there were some common themes in in many of the failed banks. Some of them were just victims of of circumstance, but but there were common themes that were going on with these banks that had failed. And as you studied them um, in the analyst chair, you know, kind of profiling them and proforming them for the potential buyer, you you realize, and you know, if 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 everybody realizes that that this was going to be the outcome, you know, I, I don't think everybody would have taken this path. Um, so that was a learning experience. What an opportunity to look behind the scenes of a crisis that has shaped the world's economy for more than a decade. During this time, many leaders in banking were faced with the toughest decisions of their careers. And that's where leaders are made. Not when the seas are smooth, the ship is tight, and the weather fair but when everything is coming apart and people are struggling to find a clear path forward. Um, you know, the years before that, when I was uh, a summer, you know, we, it was before the great recession and I actually, you know, was working on stuff that I, I 
probably had no business doing as a 20 or 21 year old, you know, college sophomore or junior. Um, but that was, that was also enlightening. And, and that was kind of at the height and the peak of, of the, of the cycle. And so there was a lot of, uh, great activity going on. And, and again, I think I learned just as much from my peers um, and, the, and the leaders within the financial institution group at Merrill than I did maybe working on a specific deal or a specific set of deals. Yeah, well, I love that. I think um, one of the things that comes to mind as you were, since you had such a laser focus on where you wanted to be from a career perspective and you're actively looking for experiences, there's kind of two ways that I often think about that. One, dive deep into something and get as much as you can out of it. The other one is to immerse yourself in a lot of different experiences so that you can see and get pattern recognition. So it seems like from the investment banking side, you're able to put yourself in a situation where you saw a lot of different banks, a lot of action, and you're able to start to see how trends, oh, this one did this one and this one did this one, and this is where it comes together from a learning perspective. Um, and, uh, you know, having both of those experience, I, 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 I bet really has helped you become the banker that you are. Yeah, I, I think I probably lean towards, uh, I think you have to have some, some level of expertise or, or competency. Um, you know, do you have to be the, the global expert on a specific topic? No, but you need to have some depth to you. But to me, I like, and I look for, and I'm, I'm attracted to, and, uh, um, you know, enjoy working with people that kind of have broad experiences. And I just think it gives a little bit different perspective. Um, there, there's not a whole lot of rocket science left out there in the world. So, um, you know, I think it's more important to, to, to focus on keeping things in the right perspective and being able to draw upon many different experiences. And, uh, and likely there's, there's something that you can glean from one of those past experiences or from somebody else's past experience that may be a novel way to, to address a problem. And so um, I do think that I've, I've developed some depth, but I also think I've, I've probably valued more kind of the width, if you will. Yeah. And speaking of width, so after New York, after your time there, Kind of what was what was next? What did what did you do next along your path to continue your your uh, progression on on personal growth and professional growth? Yeah, I, I came back home to Arkansas, which was probably a little sooner than I than I had planned or anticipated um, for for a few reasons. But I ended up working for my mentor, an individual that's that's uh, absolutely had an outsized impact in my life. Kind of going back to the the early part of our conversation, his name's Tommy May. Uh, he was chairman and CEO of Simmons First National Corporation at the time, which then was an eight bank holding company. This was still when, you know, there were multi-bank holding companies. That's kind of a, a, a dinosaur of an entity now. But um, Mr. May gave me an opportunity to come back home to Arkansas and work for him in kind of a special projects type way. But I also was was rotating around the organization and spending, you know, three, four, five, six months in, in various departments and really learning how these departments, revenue generating, uh, back office support, um, you know, out of out of headquarters, you know, what all these different pieces of the organization and learning how they contribute to the overall success of the organization, the overall profitability of the organization, um, how these groups work together. So it was a fascinating experience for a young guy. And, and I had a chance to do that for a couple of years. And then um, I left to go to, to pursue uh, further education and came back to, to Simmons ultimately and had a number of roles from there. But that, that's what I did immediately after Wall Street was I, I came back home and worked for a mentor of mine. Yeah, no, I love it because it, 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 you went from analyzing pattern recognition, figuring out what's going on in, across multiple banks, and then you dove right into a bank uh, to get your hands dirty in operations. But it, then it sounds like, you know, given an opportunity to, to, to really get a lot of exposure to all the different departments and inner workings, which is something that I've always valued um, as well. Um, so as you went to pursue your uh, your uh, higher education, so what, what, what did you decide to do for that? So I always thought I was, I was gonna go get an MBA at some point in my career. Um, you know, an MBA is a unique degree. When you get done, you, you, you are someone that holds an MBA. You're not a doctor. You're not a lawyer. You're not a dentist. You know, you just happen to have this degree. And uh, in my mind, I wanted to make sure that I was far enough away from my undergraduate business degree 
and, and I was going to go somewhere much different than that, that where I got my undergraduate degree to, to get an MBA and, 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 you know, get the value out of that degree that, that I felt like I could, and it wasn't at the right time. And, um, and my dad was sick. And so I also had some considerations there, but I, I still remember, uh, Mr. May, um, uh, like I said, he's, he's had such an impact on my life and we met for, you know, lunch or coffee or whatever it was every third Tuesday of the month or, you know, whatever day it was, it wasn't the third Tuesday, but we had a, you know, kind of uh, a recurring meeting and it was not the third Tuesday of the month. And Miss, Miss Randa Edwards, his, his, uh, longtime assistant called me and said, Hey, Mr. May wants to, wants to meet with you. And I was like, okay, this is, this is awesome. I'll run down there right now. We're going to work on this, you know, really fun, fascinating project or whatever it was. And, um, you know, he told me, Hey, I've been thinking, I think you need to think about going to law school. And I was like, you know, Mr. May, I've, I've since my freshman year of college, I've been telling you, I want to start a bank one day. What, what do you, what do you mean you think I need to go to law school? What have I done wrong? You know, uh, you're, you're, you're kicking me out of the industry. And, and, and his, his advice was, you know, you've got the wall street experience. Um, this was post Dodd-Frank, you know, the industry was becoming more and more regulated. Um, and I, and I really needed to, to, go to law school to learn how to think like a lawyer, not necessarily to become an attorney or, or, you know, a practicing lawyer, but um, I didn't know what that meant. And so he said, I want you to talk to a few people in my network, business people that have gone to law school. And I want you to, to understand, you know, what law school really teaches you. You know, I thought you go to law school and you, um, you, you learn the law. Well, you don't learn any law in, in law school. There's this fictitious thing called multi-state law and they're, they're, you know, each state is different, but not in law school. So um, you, you really go there and you learn how to, how to solve a problem within a framework and, and how to uh, analyze an issue. So um, I, 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 I talked to those people that he asked me to talk to, and I realized that, you know, hey, law school does seem like a good, good opportunity. But I had a lot of friends that had gone to law school. Uh, many of whom had graduated at that point. And so I also talked to them and, and they told me almost verbatim how miserable law school was. And so that wasn't something I was looking forward to. And so I started looking of what could I pair my law degree with to, to make it you know more enjoyable. And again, I, I wanted to preserve my MBA opportunity for down the road at this point in time. And so I found this, this, this graduate program called the Clinton School of Public Service, which literally happened to be in Little Rock because President Clinton's from Arkansas and he put his presidential library there. But I wasn't looking for grad schools in Little Rock. Um, and, and so it was a really unique program. They had a concurrent program with the law school in Little Rock where I was able to get a, a scholarship. And, and so it just made perfect sense. And it, and it allowed me to kind of break up the monotony of law school in a really unique way. Um, you know, the, the two degrees are supposed to be done in, in four years instead of three for law school or two for the Clinton school. I did them in three in three and a half. But I spent, you know, more than half of my, my law school time I, I spent abroad and, and doing various things for, for my for my graduate program. And so it was a really unique experience. Law school was absolutely one of the best decisions I've ever made. Mr. May was 100 percent right in, in that recommendation, just like he has been and everything else he's told me. I made some some fantastic friends, but I also made some great friends at the Clinton School, and I surrounded myself with with people that really thought differently than me, and their career aspirations were, were very very different than mine. So uh, both of them, especially paired together, was was a really unique and valuable time and, and, and period of my life. Yeah, oh, that's that, that's awesome. One one of the things I, I take from that story is. Once you got to the point where you're like, yeah, I, I can see how law school would be beneficial for me, and you obviously valued the um, the advice from Mr. May uh, to, to go and do that, you then looked at it and you said, how can I make this experience one that I'm really going to enjoy? And I think there's lots of times, I mean, as leaders, you're going to have to do some things that have to be done that you might not enjoy the most. But instead of saying, oh, then I'm just going to go away from it, or I'm just going to, you know just do it and get it done with asking the question, well, what can I do to change the circumstances to make it more enjoyable? And, and I love that. Now, as you were, uh, you mentioned traveling internationally and, uh, I know in previous conversations, uh, you had some, some, some very impactful stories as well as impactful, um, uh, people that you met that, uh, as you were traveling abroad and, I would say generally people from the United States probably don't spend as much time abroad as a lot of other 
citizens of the world, if you will. So I, I guess what would you share with with our listeners from some of those experiences to maybe even inspire them a little bit to, to, to get out of their comfort zone and um, get exploring the world, and which doesn't necessarily mean going to, you know, a resort town and uh, staying in an all-inclusive resort the whole time. Yeah, that's actually my the least enjoyable possible experience for me would be going to some, you know, all-inclusive uh, resort. So uh, that's definitely not my style. But I got I got my travel bug from my dad, without a doubt. Uh, he was a, a an extremely traveled individual. I don't know how many countries, I, you know, throughout childhood and, and even early adulthood, I'd always sit down and be like, okay, dad, how many countries have you been to? And we'd try to like chart them out. Um, you know, it was, it was not a hundred, but it, it was, you know, something in the 80 to 90 range. Um, and he, wow. his, his ability to just connect on a, on a genuine level with, with people, no matter what is something that, you know, if I'm, if I'm proud of, of something and I'm, I'm proud of, of plenty of things, but, but probably the ability to do that. I think I, I got that from my dad. And so I, I don't know how many countries exactly I've been to probably, you know, 30, 35, something like that. But my, the way I like to travel is I love going to these developing countries. And I, I think there's a reason for that. To me, it's a, it's a, it's an invigorating kind of environment. These are, these are, you know, the folks there are, are, are entrepreneurial and they're hustlers and, and they have to wake up each day and, and, and make the most of the day. And that just is so uh, fun to see and experience. And, it, and like I said, it's very invigorating for me. Um, it also really challenges you to step outside of your comfort zone. And, and, and I really enjoy doing that. I enjoy forcing myself to do that. Um, you know, that's not to say I haven't been to the, you know, the normal places like, you know, Mexico or Spain or Italy or, you know, whatever I've, I've, I've done those. Um, but I've, you know, probably the ones that I've enjoyed the most are, are these developing countries. Um, yeah, I, I, I lived for, for about four or five months in West Africa and, and traveled a lot there, but I lived in Ghana. I spent about six months in Mongolia, which is in Northern Asia. Um, and then I, I lived for three or four months in Southeast Asia in a country called Myanmar or Burma. Uh, but I've, I've spent a lot of time traveling throughout. And so, um, I just, I love doing that. And, uh, I've got, you know, I've got my favorite places, but I, I, I don't like to go back to the same place, uh, more than once for, for some reason, with one exception I, every summer I do go backpacking the same place, but, um, I, I'm, I'm kind of on a quest, not necessarily to, to see new countries, but to, to, to gain new experiences. Um, but I certainly have, you know, favorite cities or favorite countries or, or favorite experiences. Yeah. And as you, as you think back, are there any stories, uh, that come to mind, uh, that are just real standout, uh, experiences that you have while living in, uh, Africa and Asia or any of the other oh, yeah. places you've been uh, to? Yeah, I could probably, I could probably, you know, we could do a podcast on, on funny travel stories. Uh, most extreme maybe that, that, uh, listeners would enjoy. Um, I, I, during law school, my dad passed away. Actually the, the day of my last, uh, final exam to graduate from law school was the day that my dad died. I didn't take my final exam that day for, for obvious reasons, but um, so my dad died and I had to start, pr uh, preparing for the, for the bar. And so I was studying for the bar. I was the executor on his estate, was going through all this stuff, was talking to friends and family about him. And, um, ultimately kind of came to the, to the realization that this really unique man that I always thought there was something else, you know, there. And, and I didn't understand why I had all these, you know, foreign friends that lived all over the place. And he spoke all these languages and, uh, had spent so much time abroad. I, I realized that, uh, a, a, a swath of his career was spent with the CIA and he spent a, a big portion of, of his career during that time in a country called Laos, which is in Southeast Asia. And there was a, a secret war going on uh, in Laos during the time we were in Vietnam and um, found out that my dad was at a place called Longqing, which is known if you research it as the, the most secret base in the history of the world. And it's in the the highlands of, of Laos um, in, in a very remote area, very difficult to get to. And so I kind of started piecing this journey of his together. And I said, to, uh, you know, I want to go follow, retrace those footsteps. I want to go see, um, you know, what he was experiencing and, and what he saw. Um, 
And so the day after my bar exam, I literally jumped on a plane and, and flew to Vincennes, Laos, which is the capital, and, and rented a motorcycle, turned in my passport, and uh, I followed this, you know, I didn't know how long, how long I was going to be there. I kind of told myself maybe a month or so, um, followed this map and, and started, you know, going to the different places that he had been based to, ultimately wanting to get to, to Longqing and uh, met so many people along the way, even some, you know, this this one hotel that he had stayed at, uh, rechasing his own footsteps, you know, years before he died, uh, I showed her a picture of my dad and she knew who he was and told me where his room was and talked about how, you know, she had never met somebody that could speak the language like he could. And so that was a, that was like this amazing experience, but, but the one that I'm trying to get to, and I apologize, I took too long to get here, but I ended up underneath my motorcycle, uh, after not seeing people for hours, because I was in a really remote part of the country, going to a place that I knew my dad had visited on his like, you know, later years when he went back. And uh, I had a broken collarbone. I didn't know it at the time, but I'm sitting there. I don't speak the language. I have not seen anybody in hours. I have no way to communicate. There's no Wi-Fi. There's no cell phones. Um, and, you know, thankfully, I, I made it out from underneath the uh, motorcycle, was able to flag down a car within, you know, before nighttime and, got taken to this, you know, hospital would be a very kind way to say it. It was really more of a, a cinder block medical clinic and, and got a sling and some ibuprofen and, and made my way back home over, over the course of the next several days. But, you know, I think those types of things, pushing yourself to the limit, um, not being afraid to take a risk and, and, and knowing the joys that come from that. I mean, as much as that, that ending of that trip was maybe a bummer and not certainly not how I had uh, envisioned it, I and mean, I still remember riding around on that motorcycle thinking to myself, this is the most freeing experience of my life. And I, I was so connected to my dad, you know, riding around this, this beautiful country. And, um, but it was also like, Hey, you were stuck under a motorcycle with a broken collarbone and you may not have been able to get out of there. So, I mean, there's like, you know, this, 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 uh, balance to it, but, um, it was, it was, uh, that, that's a, a story that I, that I like to tell and, and folks have, you know, people that know me may have heard that one before, but that that's kind of a crazy one that, uh, that, you know, probably some of your listeners are like, this guy's crazy. <laughs> well, I, I, uh, that is a great story. Thank you for, so much for sharing it. And I think it's a good example of some of what you're talking about, pushing yourself out of your comfort zone. Sometimes it's not going to go the way that you want it, but that's kind of the point, right? Like that's, that's kind of the point. Um, as you finished law school, um, as well as uh, your master's degree at the Clinton School of Public Service, getting back onto this journey of uh, starting a bank, which ultimately en- ended up where you're at Encore. What what, what was this? What were the steps that you took after kind of your uh, higher education to, uh, to to where you are now? Yeah, so I ended up going back to work for for Simmons. My mentor. Uh, retired. He has ALS disease. Um, he's, he's still alive and doing great. Um, but, but he retired. His successor was someone that had been on the board, uh, previously. And I had, you know, some, some relationship with, uh, through my experience at Simmons and, and he hired me to, to come be his chief of staff. They had a, a, a desire to be, become very acquisitive. And so ultimately had an opportunity to, to, to help lead the merger and acquisitions program, take over the investor relations uh, program, which they were a publicly traded company, but, but um, were, were still, you know, a smaller cap organization that didn't have a ton of institutional ownership. And so those experiences were amazing. Um, had the opportunity over, you know, several years to, to uh, lead or, or, or be a part of leading or, uh, uh, you know, oversee multiple functions within Simmons, um, you know, the, the broker dealer and the insurance agency and some of the wealth management businesses, uh, my dad was a financial advisor, but I had never been in that business. And I, you know, I led a team of 20 plus financial advisors and, uh, all of them were, you know, multiples of, of my age and had multiples of my experience, but, but had that opportunity and, and learned so much through that, um, ran the mortgage business for, for a brief period of time. Again, you know, I couldn't spell mortgage when I, when I took over the, the, the mortgage business and had, you know, 60 or 70 mortgage bankers across the, the footprint that, that reported to me, but, uh, but I learned so much through that. As you can hear, Bert's experience in banking is phenomenal. 
And by his own admission, most of these situations required him to learn fast and lead a team of people who knew a lot more than he did. This is the conundrum of leadership, especially if you believe in a meritocracy. You don't actually have to be the one with the most wrinkles in the room to build up a successful team. You need wisdom and humility, which is clearly something Bert has in spades. I got to touch uh, some other specialty lines of business like like credit card and, and their equipment finance business. And so those were all formative. Those were all great learning experiences. But uh, while doing the mergers and acquisitions uh, at Simmons, I had the opportunity to get to know Chris Roberts, who was the president of Delta Trust and Bank, which was the first transaction that I, that I got to work on after law school and grad school. And uh, really admired Chris, thought he was you know, an, a, a very accomplished and amazing uh, story in itself. He had started a bank prior to Delta and had sold it and then had helped to, to get Delta in a position to, to be sold. Um, he had a, a, a really great personality and, and charisma to him. Uh, he was a fantastic business developer. And so I just, I admired him. We stayed in touch and um, ultimately he, he, he's one of the, the folks that, uh, well, you know, he's the primary uh, inspiration behind Encore. This, this is his Encore, as they call it. Uh, but, you know, we partnered together with, with his college best friend, and, and we started this journey together in 2019. Yeah. Uh, I, I love that. Again, just, you know, a, a, I'm seeing a similar theme throughout your life that you were constantly put in situations where you're able to learn new things and get a lot of experiences. One of the things I always talk about is like a car doesn't really matter how old the car is. It's about how many miles you get on it. Right. And so in a year you can put on a hundred thousand miles or in a year you can put on 10, you know, a hundred miles. And, uh, it really seems like, uh, you have worked hard to ensure that you're getting as much mileage out of every experience that you could possibly get so that you could be well-rounded and learn to kind of fulfill that dream that you had to start a bank. So now let's get there, right? So it seems like you now have that opportunity to fulfill this dream that you've had your entire career. I mean, how does, how does that, how does that feel? Did it, did it end up happening much different than you thought it was like going back to high school and college and what you were envisioning versus what it actually was? Oh yeah. Uh, in a, in a number of ways. So, you know, I, I wanted to start a bank when I was 17 years old and that, that was my goal and dream, but, but for all the wrong reasons, I, I thought it would make me rich and famous and, and powerful. Um, you know, I quickly realized bankers really aren't that rich. They really aren't that famous. And they're really not that powerful, but it, it, it was a fantastic career and the impact you can make on a community or with a family or, a business or what have you was, was amazing. And then the people you get to, you know, work with, uh, they, they tend to be really, uh, fascinating and accomplished and experienced and smart individuals. Um, so, you know, that dream was really about me starting a bank. It was very inwardly focused. Um, you know, my, my idea was I was going to be the guy and I can tell you, I'm certainly not the guy at Encore. Um, and, and I, I think Chris and Philip would tell you that, you know, we're not the three guys. Uh, Encore is is this fantastic organization full of people that are all contributing in, in their own meaningful way. That doesn't, I mean, ultimately somebody's got to make a decision. Ultimately somebody's got to make a directive or whatever. But, um, you know, certainly I believe that I, I'm a better banker, a better professional because I've surrounded myself with, you know, Chris Roberts and Philip Jett. They, they have their own unique characteristics and their own unique strengths and their own unique weaknesses among themselves. And I think Philip's a better banker um, and a better professional because he's surrounded with Chris and me. And I think Chris would say the same thing there. And then I know we would all say we're better because of this amazing team we have around us. Um, so that certainly is different than I envisioned it. Um, I think I, I've, I've probably influenced and contributed to certain pieces of, of the Encore story that, that are, are, um, are, you know, material. I think Phillips contributed to to certain things within the Encore story that are very material to who we are as an organization, and, and Chris has done the same. And so, I don't think we have one single fingerprint on this. I think I think there's so many fingerprints on this, which is different than you know how I saw this playing out years ago. But I think it's so much better. And this has been, in a really weird way, this has been one of the most humbling experiences of my life because it's it's not about me. I don't know everything. And I've, I've realized that throughout this journey, there's, there's just so much more knowledge in the room. There's just so much more experience in the room. 
And I've enjoyed that a lot. Yeah. Yeah. It is weird to make that transition to get to the point where you're comfortable and okay with not knowing everything. Right? Yeah. But there's yeah. a, there's an amount of vulnerability because that means then you have to trust someone else. Right. Who might know more than just you. Um, I think one of the things that some of our listeners would enjoy as well, uh, from my perspective at least, is when you talk about we win together, I think that you all strung this together in a different way than any other bank I've, I've at least uh, seen in my life in regards to the strategies of opening up new markets and how you raised capital and all that stuff. Would you mind sharing just a little bit of that to kind of bring this idea of we win together uh, to even more of the forefront on how you do that? Yeah. So again, we started at Little Rock, Arkansas. It is the capital city of Arkansas, but it's not some you know thriving metropolis. Apologies, Mayor Frank Scott. Frank, Frank Scott, this is a great city. I'm proud to call it home. But uh, Little Rock is is not necessarily um, you know uh, the, the city that every city across America is trying to replicate. So our idea was we we were going to be a regionally focused bank. And uh, and go to markets that that would make us more attractive and more valuable in time to to our shareholders. But we were going to do that through our network. So Chris, Philip, and myself had had you know this network of people that we had developed relationships with over the course of our careers, and we would talk to them about helping us start in Dallas or Nashville or wherever we ended up. And we were very agnostic about where we ended up. We we knew the kinds of markets we wanted to go to, but we didn't necessarily say we have to be here, 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 and here. And so we just started talking to people that we knew. We told the story of our vision for Encore, which is to build a different kind of bank that was more focused on experience and 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 uh, and not about branch infrastructure or you know pricing or or anything like that. So we we were very successful in in convincing our friends in the in the industry to say yes. I mean, today we're in eight states. Everything we've done has been organic. But what's been amazing to to watch is um, you know, these leaders that we've said, okay, we want you to help us open up Dallas or San Antonio or Tampa or whatever. Well, they have their own network and they've built that their local teams that way. And then the other part of Encore that I think is very unique to us was, um, and this was, you know, absolutely something that Chris stressed at the beginning that, that he wanted to see us do. And, and we've been successful in doing it, but we surrounded those local teams with you know, an army of shareholders, local shareholders, these movers and shakers in the community, these business owners, doctors, lawyers, dentists, you know, whoever it may be, real estate developers, we asked them to invest in Encore. Now, these weren't random people. We we vetted the leader. We vetted the bankers before we hired them. And we really talked about their network. And then we went in and told the story and the vision of what we were trying to create long term. And we, we you know, successfully raised over the course of three capital raises so far, we've raised 360 plus million dollars. We've, we've garnered the, the support of 1900 shareholders across these eight States. Um, but I think that's a huge part of our organic growth strategy because now you have these, these advocates in the market that of course you're going to have an opportunity to, to gain their, their loans and their deposits, but they're also going to send you their friends and their family and people that they want to bank with their bank. And so this concept of we win together now is, is there's a whole lot of we in that, right? There's there's the shareholders, there's the team, and, and they've invested too. That's a huge part of the recruitment philosophy is, hey, you're not going to become an employee. You're going to become my partner. The personal transformation that Bert has undergone is evident in his strategy at Encore. As a young man, he wanted to start a bank because of the prestige. Now his bank is a shining example of what can happen when you invite other competent leaders in and everyone puts skin in the game. Encore isn't a success because of what Bert or the other founding partners are capable of doing. It's a success because the entire organization is empowered to make it great. If you want to do this, I need you to bet on yourself and I need you to bet on the we. And so that's been a huge part of, of, of uh, how we built the organization as well. Yeah, I just I, I absolutely love that story. And there's so much power to that. The we win together isn't a platitude. It is quite literally we, meaning your shareholders, your team members, the management team, the board, like everybody really is. It, it's it, it, it's amazing. And I think a great um, a, a great way to uh, get alignment at a different level than what you typically see. So as, as we wrap up our conversation, we have we have we have two things we always like to talk about. Uh, before doing it. 
the first one, everyone talks about business books all the time, so we want to be different. So do you have any recommendations on non-business books that you think that our listeners uh, could uh, get some value out of? Uh, oh, good question. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm an adventurer. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a thrill seeker. And so a book that I, I've enjoyed and, and I, I actually think a lot about in, in various life experiences is, is called Into the, Into the Wild. Um, it's by John Krakauer. It's about an, a, a young man that, uh, after college made his way out to Alaska and, and was, uh, kind of living in the wilderness for a bit and, and ultimately, you know, wasn't able to make it, but it was the, there's so much about that experience to me that, that, uh, can be telling for, for the reader. And, and one is, um, you know, youthful vigor also can needs probably to be tempered. And, um, you know, not that, that, that young man that's profiled in this book, uh, shouldn't have gone and done that, but, um, maybe a little bit more parameters around, you know, what he was trying to accomplish a little bit more knowledge of the, of the local area or the weather or what have you. Um, but also, you know, this, this idea that, Hey, go chase a dream. And yes, there are risks. And in this case, it, it was, it was catastrophic, but, um, this is something that he wanted to do and, and, um, I can't imagine, you know, clearly he probably suffered towards the end, but I can't imagine the, the joy and the, the, the uh, benefit that he got through pursuing that experience. And, and you know, uh, to me, there's, there's value there. Um, talks a little bit about his relationship with his parents and, and kind of the, the postmortem, if you will. But I, I love that book. Uh, I can I could, you know, envision myself living on uh, on the land like he was. And so uh, maybe maybe others wouldn't enjoy it as much as I do. But I, I love that book. Yeah, well, that's great. I have to I have to ask, did you did you watch the movie and how does it stand up to the, the book? No, I'm did. really not much of a of a TV watcher or movie watcher. So I know I know the movie's out there, but I, I didn't watch the movie. Yeah. Excellent. Well, very cool. Thank you so much for that recommendation. Um, our next question that we always like to ask, um, any of our guests specifically, cause this is all about leadership is the leader born or is the leader made? Hmm. That's a good question. I, um, I, I mean, I definitely lean pretty heavily on the a leader is made side. I, I do think they're, uh, you know, people are born with certain abilities and, and, or, or, or capabilities maybe, or, or competencies. But I think that's, that's just the, the floor maybe. And, and the floor even maybe is not the right way to say it. The floor just means that like, that's where they could get to if they, if they put those talents and abilities to, to, uh, to bear. But to me, the ceiling is, is established through life's experiences and, and your relationships and the, and the, the way that you grow as a human being and, and the, uh, the people that touch you and challenge you and inspire you. Um, you know, I'm certainly not here to say that uh, I'm, I'm a, I'm a, a model to, to go by in terms of, of, of leadership, but um, I don't think I would be where I, I, Oh, I know I would not be where I am today. And I know I wouldn't ha- be able to make the impact that I do make, however small or, or great that is without that experience. And so to, to say that a leader is, is made, uh, I mean, to say that a leader is born to me is a little bit uh, short-sighted. I, I, I think a leader is 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 much more made than than born. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for that perspective. Uh, before we sign off, is there anything else that you wanted to? Any other things that you wanted to talk about that we didn't cover, Bert? That you're that you would hoping that we would cover? No, I, I like I said, I, I'm I'm so appreciative of the the opportunity to, to to do this with you. Humbled by the by the ask, I don't I don't have any agenda here. I just uh, again appreciate the the opportunity to tell the story, and hopefully your listeners uh, get a lot out of it. And uh, I'm happy to connect with any any of them on LinkedIn or or elsewhere if if they're interested. Yeah, no, I really appreciate it. I know uh, selfishly, I got a ton out of this conversation and so appreciative of your time. And I'm sure our listeners will as well. Thank you so much. All right, Nathan. Thank you. Have a great uh, rest of the day. The novelist Ernest Hemingway wrote, we are all apprentices in a craft where no one ever becomes a master. 
To me, that is the crux of what it means to be a leader. You can always find somebody who has more experience, wealth, or professional accolades than you. So it's easy to forget that the only thing that really matters is your willingness to wake up every day and work as a perpetual apprentice. Bert Hicks' teachability and determination to get better as a leader is a lesson that will stick with me for a long time. I'm honored to share his perspective and stories with you. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Your time is valuable, and I love that you chose to share it with me. You'll find Bert's book recommendation in the show notes. You've been listening to Builder, Banker, Hacker, Chief, a podcast produced and distributed by Z-Suite Technologies Incorporated, all rights reserved. I'm your host, Nathan Baumeister, the CEO and co-founder of Z-Suite Tech. This show was written and edited by Zach Garver. If you enjoyed the episode, please take a moment to leave us a review or share the episode. This helps other people to find our show. You can also listen on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Spotify. Thank you.